Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today we're talking with Brady Williams, who you might know as the star of My Five Wives. Now, Brady has become a really good friend of mine. He is fantastic and he's doing something really interesting and I hope that we can get into it today. He is a scholar at UVU and one of part of his research focus is talking about the idea that polygamy could be progressive, even feminist. Now, it's interesting to have a man doing that advocating. So we're going to get into that, and I'm going to ask Brady some really hard questions. But first of all, Brady, can you say hello? Hi, everyone. So tell us where you're calling from. So I'm just calling from my basis slash very well-lived-in office down in Rocky Ridge. Now, for those who don't know, Rocky Ridge is kind of code word for AUB, uh, the Apostolic United Brethren. And that is the group that you come from, correct? Yeah, I came from from the Apostolic United Brethren. I spent, uh, well, I converted from the LDS Church when I was 16 into uh, into the AUB and then back out of it when I was about, what, 35 maybe? So let's get into that. Let's start. Let's just dive into your story. Let's. I want you to talk about your early childhood, your experience with the LDS Church, and sort of what brings you to fundamentalism. Sure. So I was born and raised mainstream Mormon. Uh, I grew up in Southern California and then up in Seattle with my dad and federal law enforcement. And so I just grew up uh, living the typical Mormon life. You know, I went to primary and mutual and did the Boy Scouts and I'm an Eagle Scout. You know, I did I did everything that I was supposed to do until I was 16, almost 17 when my dad found the AUB and he converted and then I converted maybe six months or eight months after he did and joined the AUB. So talk to me about that because I think a common misperception about Mormonism in general, especially as the LDS Church tries really hard to distance itself from plural marriage, we kind of forget that this is actually a very common thing. So talk about why you were drawn to this doctrine as opposed to just, you know, going to BYU and going on a mission and marrying like every other mainline LDS person does. Yeah. So when my dad joined, obviously that was a lot of pressure to follow my dad, but I, you know, I've always been the, kind of a rebellious kid and thinking for myself and, and I decided I wasn't going to leave the church. You know, I wanted to go on a mission and, and do the, the typical young man Mormon thing. And, uh, but when my dad sat down and he showed me the history and he showed me the, you know, in the journal of discourses and the history of the church and all of this stuff and, and that, you know, plural marriage and well, a lot of the early day tenets of the LDS faith were abandoned. Then I thought, wow, you know, there's something here. And, and I converted and I, and I really, I was really prayerful and, and, uh, have a testimony that that's where I was supposed to be. You know, I was supposed to join the AUB and I did. And I was stalwart, you know, and I, and I dove head on into that just like I did the church and, you know, got married and married and married and married and married. And, uh, I went up the ranks and found myself being a, a leader in the, in the AUB. Okay, so let's talk about 
I want you to talk about your experience and then the experience just in general with the AUB. Talk first about the AUB, how they might be a little bit different than the LDS Church and how they're sort of similar. Okay. From the LDS Church or from other polygamist groups? From, um, I think, the LDS Church. I I would say this is what I tell people as like a quick shortcut to understand the AUB. AUB is the show Sister Wives that is on TLC. Um, they come from the AUB church. So mm-hmm. you can see they're not Warren Jeff's prairie dress, right? Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So the AUB um, is the religion that I grew up in. And so you saw my family on My Five Wives or Cody Brown. He's more popular than we ever were. And we're not, you know, there's no prairie dresses. There's none of that, whatever the polygamous curl hairdo. There's no arranged marriages. Well, at least not anymore. There were. Um, there's no young bride marriages. Uh, you probably wouldn't notice them walking down the street and say, oh, that's a polygamist. Unless it was like in the middle of July and someone's wearing a long sleeve shirt. That would be your only, you know, key to, hey, this might be a, a polygamist if from the AUB. They're doctrinally um, very, very similar. Like, if you took the whole work of doctrine, Mormon theology, and you compared, I would say the AUB and the church share 98% of the same tenets. It's just essentially polygamy. Uh the idea of united order being lived uh, as Joseph wanted it to. And um, they still believe, the AUB still believes in uh, the Canaanite should not receive the priesthood. Uh, and they take that to a little bit larger level, not only not just be part of the priesthood, but they shouldn't even be fellowshipped in the AUB. Um, what else is there? differences. I mean, those are, those are probably the big three for sure. How would you look, how do most of the AUB look at the LDS church? The AUB, I, I think looks on the church with fondness and like the mother church and the father priesthood. And that's a pretty typical, uh, polygamous fundamentalist Mormon idea is they look at the mother, the church as their mother and the priesthood is their father, and, and that it's a broken marriage. And, and one day, God's house will be set in order, and the church will come back to the father. It's never the father going back to the mother, though. So they think the church will one day come back and, and uh, bend the knee, if you will, and, and admit that they were wrong forever leaving the priesthood. Because, see, the church thinks polygamists, Mormon fundamentalists, left them. But Mormon fundamentalists believe the church were actually the ones who apostatized and left. Okay. So this is sort of the feeling that comes from other fundamentalist groups. I would say this is something you have in common. But I think the thing, and you brought this up just a few minutes ago, you really integrate well with the LDS culture, lifestyle, the look. You know, when Mm -hmm. I see families in the AUB, they're... So much like my LDS neighbors with, you know, they get their hair dyed with the blonde highlights and their kids all have the cute Pinterest photos and it's right. a very similar culture. Yeah, yeah, they really are. Um, with that said, so I, I would say that that was more true five, ten years ago than it is today. 
there's been an active push for the last at least five, ten years um, right over the pulpit that AEB women um, should not wear makeup, should not wear jewelry. They need to be more modest in their dress, meaning no more, not so much of the modern fashions. In fact, one of the one of the first things that led to our getting disinvited, if you will, from the AUB is that my wives um, stood up to Lemoyne Jensen at the time, who was the prophet at the time, and pierced their ears and wore makeup and didn't mind wearing a you know, gassed a sleeved shirt that went up to their elbow. So those things are um, more and more frowned upon. In fact, I, I just heard that they they made a big push over the pulpit just recently saying that women should not be wearing makeup and they should, if they have pierced ears, they need to remove their earrings. And, Interesting. And Why such. do you think they're sort of doubling down instead of becoming more progressive, I guess? Yeah. So I think... Um, I mean, and this kind of goes into a lot of my studies. Uh, I've I've really keyed in on fundamentalism. And I I think fundamentalist Mormons are just, they fall prey to what all fundamentalists do. They always want to yearn back to the time when the fullness was true. And any fundamentalist group, you can go back to that time where it was, where things were perfect, so to speak. Like, you know, fundamentalists, uh, Muslims look back to the day of Muhammad and fundamentalist Mormons look back to the day of either Joseph Musser or in the case of AUB or Joseph Smith. And so anything that was, that was the standard back then should be the standard now. And I think with um, particularly Lemoyne started it. And I mean, he told me to my face that he wanted to bring the AUB back to the times of Joseph Musser. And I think that Harry Bennell and Lynn Thompson, who are the leaders, right? well, Lynn Thompson and Harry Bennell, number two, are the leaders of the AEB, and they're very much of that ilk. They want, they want the AEB to go back to the times of Joseph Musser, and women didn't wear earrings, and they didn't wear makeup back then. And a return to the fundamentalist roots. So it's almost like a restoration. Yeah, oh yeah. They want to they wanna get back to the time. When they were righteous, you know, and that's what they, that's what they look at. They, they look at that time, um, when, when things were so perfect, you know, and, and so they're, it's almost like, it's almost like history has a, has a hold of them and there is, and there is no progress. I mean, they're, they're really true to the word of fundamentalist, right? They, the conservative, there is no growth. The, the fullness was at this point, and anything that came after is suspect. And so progress is really a dirty word. And thus, progressives are, um, are just really looked at as, as something to be afraid of. Okay, so um, I think that gives us a, a really good background into your story. So I want you to talk about your experience in the AUB. If you're comfortable sharing the stories of your wives, maybe talk about what that was like entering a plural family. And and mm-hmm. you know we're hoping to have you know some of the some of the women in your life speak on this eventually. So 
Mm-hmm. Tell me what you can say about your experience. Sure. You know, my my first wife, Polly, uh, we just dated like anybody else dated, uh, other than I went and asked permission of her father to take her on the first date, and that may or may not be the case for your typical Mormon, right? Um, and we just fell in love and got married. And then the not-so-typical thing was <laughs> I married Robin eight months later. Wow. Uh, my second wife. Yeah. And we, had, me and Robin had dated previously, um, but she had broken it off, and that all ended. And then after I married Polly, then things rekindled. And, and Robin actually came and, and made it obvious that she wanted to be a member of my family. And that's something that I've done a little bit different than the typical polygamist is that I never, I never went looking for a, a second wife or, or a subsequent wife. They, they all made it known that they wanted to, um, in one way or another, they made it known that they were interested in joining my family. And, um, you know, and then, so when I was 21, I married Polly. When I was, I can't remember my exact age, but it was, I see, it must have been, it was eight months later. So I was 22 when I married Robin. And I believe I was 24, maybe 25 when I married Rose. And then a couple years later, I married Noni. And then when I was 29, I married Rhonda. And so at 29, I had five. And that's a lot. That's, that's a lot even in polygamous terms, for sure. Well, and I think especially, you know, I think back into my early 20s, and a lot of people that I talk to that leave the church especially get frustrated with the fact that they got married so young. And a lot of them, you know, the, the LDS story is going on a mission, coming home at 21, 22, getting married. And at 22, you're, you're not only getting married, you're entering plural marriage. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it was, it was intense. And, you know, and I'm trying to take care of them and have a living and, you know, provide a living for them. And, starting businesses and 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 I started my own business early and uh luckily I made a lot of money and was able to take care of my family throughout all the years and growing up to this day and now I have grandkids too so it's strange to me first of all that you're a grandfather that's hard to <laughs> yeah. get my head around but I guess logistically that makes sense um Congratulations. I felt like I was shaming you. you We just had a new baby grand boy, grandson. Really? (laughs) He just, yeah, just, what is he, two and a half months? How many grandbabies? I just have two grandsons is all from Carly, my oldest. That's awesome. Congratulations, Carly. She's 24. So, okay, Um, I have to ask. I have talked to so many people about plural marriage and the struggles, and I remember... I was fine. I was a polygamy apologist until I got married. And it was like 20, 21 years old, you know, being in a new relationship, having sex for the first time with the only person I've ever been with and feeling like all of a sudden this like deep resentment towards polygamy. Now, your your wives are different because they grew up in the culture and they have probably a hundred explicit ways that they were prepared for plural marriage and probably a million subtle ways. But right. you didn't. So how does your brain suddenly adjust to this culture? Yeah, so my dad comes home one day and he says, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm looking at. It's polygamy. And 
I'm shocked, you know, growing up just mainstream LDS at 16 that I don't even know. I don't know anything about polygamy other than I heard maybe Brigham Young did it, you know? Right. Me too. And so, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for it. I grew up monogamous, and, but I learned it, right? I read all the doctrine that says that this is what you have to do. And if you want to inherit the same kingdom as Abraham, you will do as Abraham does. You know, that good old fundamentalist thought. And and I just took it on. And I it was the right way to be. And it was what I did. And I think the one thing that, and maybe, I don't know how, how you're going to use this, Lindsay, but um, the, one of my successes in plural marriage is perhaps that I wasn't raised in plural marriage. Interesting. Because I, and I found this to be so true when I was giving a lot of marriage advice when I was the bishop of Rocky Ridge. And essentially what, I guess it would be the equivalent of a general authority in the church because I was a 70 apostle with the AUE. So it's kind of like the first form of 70, I guess. Um, and I was called on to do a lot of marriage counseling. I married for love. I mean, every... Every time I married a woman, it wasn't because of testimony. It was because I loved her. I was attracted to her. I I just, something in my soul just knew her, right? And wanted to, just knew that this was it. She was it. And, but it happened to me five times, you know? And um, a little story to go alongside that. After I married Rosemary, um, we, we moved back in with her mom while I was building our house. And... Uh, I had an opportunity. Rosemary went out with her friends or something, and I was home watching uh, our little baby Kimberly, our oldest, <laughs> and my mother-in-law Donna, who is like the grand matriarch of the AEB now. I, I was just sitting there talking, and and we we started talking about Rosemary, and I just told Donna how much you know, just how in love I was with Rosemary, and what a beautiful woman she was, and and um. Just how, you know, I just was so grateful that she had raised such a wonderful daughter. And I remember her just looking at me and just kind of cocking her head sideways. And she goes, you mean that, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just madly in love with your daughter. And it's just such a privilege to have her in my life. And, and she says, Brady, what you have is so, so rare. And I just, I mean, I was so naive, right? I was probably 25 at the time and I. I says, what are you talking about, Donna? And she says, I would say at least, I can't remember what high 90 percentage she gave, but it was high 90s percent of the men who live polygamy don't love their multiple wives, their plural wives. And I, I mean, I remember my jaw dropping and me asking her, why would they marry them if they didn't love them? You know, I mean, I was raised, I was raised watching my dad just love my mom and just, I could, I knew he loved her. And so I would never think to marry a woman unless I loved her with, all, with everything, right? That I had butterflies and all that stuff when I was courting them. And so that's what I did. That's how I, that's how I married. And when when she told me, and if anybody would know, it'd be Rose, it'd be uh, Rosemary's mom, Donna, that the vast, vast majority of men in the principle, meaning plural marriage, don't marry for love. They marry for all the other reasons, status, uh, it's a commandment. They marry for testimony. 
all of these things. And, and I think that is, if it's not the biggest problem in polygamy, it's right up there that people are not marrying for the right reasons. And I, and I think, I think I did, you know, because, because I think marrying for love is the right reason. And, and I can absolutely say I did. And I just happened to do it five times. Okay. That's helpful. Um, do you think your wives would have a different experience? A different experience with what? So, what do you mean? I mean, the way that you tell it makes sense to me. I, I mean, of course, I know you too. So I know a lot of information that others sure. might not know. But we have a lot of listeners that listen to this who feel very in pain about this concept or this principle or who mm. have been wounded by it. And so... I yeah. think there's just this inherent bias that's all that you're already going up against because you're the guy talking about the experience. Yep. So let's talk about that so, for a minute. Yeah. So let me just admit right out. I think, um, I think most women, and I think if you talk to all my wives, they would, they would agree with this, that they were programmed from conception to, live polygamy that's structurally violent right where they are they're 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 meant to be a plural wife right so is there when when the polygamists say hey you know why don't you just let consenting adults do what they will um well one of the arguments against that is well can you really call it consenting if they don't know any other way? And I would agree with that argument. I, I don't think a person can truly be consenting if they don't know any other way, right? I mean, they are consenting, but, but if they don't know that the grass is greener and they, and how can they, without being offered the other grass, how can they refuse it, right? So they need to know what's out there. And then if they are fully informed, that's why when I say a fully informed, I qualify that statement by saying a fully informed consenting adult should be able to live how they want. They should be able to love who they want. And until they're fully informed, which takes some real doing if you've been born and raised in a culture that says the only way you're going to get to heaven is if you live plural marriage, right? The only way you'll be a fit daughter in Zion is if you're a plural wife. Well, that's not consent. You know, that's that's keeping people in ignorance. And so I, I really think it takes a lot of courage to, to do what, frankly, my wives did, which is they go out and they got informed. They read some amazingly tough books they they um they saw that joseph smith was a philanderer right that he he had sex with other men's wives and he and he mistreated you know all these women and took advantage of them through his charisma and it's it was a pretty and and his station you know and his his power and it became very evident and and it was a real struggle for them. And it was touch and go whether or not they'd even stay with me. Um, 
Well, before and, we get into that, this is really good. This is really good. But before we get into that, and I want to get into that because I think it's such an important thing, but back up for a minute. Talk to us what it's like now becoming a bishop of Rocky oh, Ridge. Yeah. Sure. What that feels like. Yeah, so as I'm growing through gaining, you know, my family and I I have five different women that have wanted to come into my home and, and into my family and and I I say this now a little bit cringy because it always was my family, right? Not our family because I was the head. And this is a very very typical thing in patriarchal uh patriarchal centered what communities families ideologies is that it's the man's family but um i was really good i i was a good good at speaking i i knew a lot uh, i worked in their temple as a temple worker i was i was a high uh 70 apostle and then i became the bishop of rocky ridge which is well I, i'm pretty sure the longest running united order uh, if there's a longer running United Order, I don't know what it is. But I became the bishop after Tom Bronson, my father-in-law, stepped down, and and I ran the Rocky Ridge United Order for for five years, and was in charge of the United Order and the the ecclesiastical jurisdiction of you know what South Central Utah for the AUB, and that was you know that was. Well, that was a lot of work, but I loved it. I loved serving the people and helping them and doing my best. In my experience, in the LDS experience, the bishop has status, he has power, he's respected in the ward just sort of naturally. And then we go and we confess a lot of things. Do you have a similar yeah. duty as a bishop there? Yeah, in fact, it's it's actually expanded. So, so I had, so a bishop in the AUB is essentially like a bishop in the church on steroids. Uh he he does worthiness interviews. He he does tithing settlements, and uh, you know all of that. He conducts meetings uh, on Sunday, and but in the AUB, he also uh, is in charge of the United Order, and the United Order took easily most of my time because people consecrate everything. Uh, now the interpretation of everything, you know, is is varied from you know steward to steward, but it it took on a huge I don't know what it was just a huge amount of time and a huge amount of responsibility to take care of all the needs of what there's probably I don't know five hundred eight hundred people in Rocky Ridge alone plus all of the members of AUB in the outline areas and I took care of all of their charity, all of the, all the needs of the, of the needy. Um, but zoning, planning, uh, new water tanks, putting in new roads. Um, yeah, new, new subdivision zonings. I mean, everything, everything was included. The farm, planning the farm and the new irrigation systems. And it was, it was a big deal. My wives felt like they were widows for five years. I think many LDS women would say the same thing. But would the difference yeah. be that they had more support because of sister wives? Well, I mean, yeah. So we could go into all the benefits of 
of plural marriage, I certainly think, I think my wives are really lucky that they have each other because, so I had a vantage point of a, being a bishop and seeing that most people, they don't live polygamy. They live multiple monogamy where the women can't stand each other. Most polygamous marriages, they, they at best tolerate each other. The women do. And, and frankly, they tolerate the man as well. Um, I've just been so blessed in that that's not been our reality. And there's a, I don't know, there's a bunch of different reasons, I guess, people could say that our family hasn't had to go through that. But my wives have been, I mean, they have their struggles, but they really do get along. And they really are friends with each other. And so we've been blessed that way. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And so maybe now we can get into, let's talk about, I mean, in the LDS church, we call it a faith transition or faith crisis. But I, I kind of, mm. you're, you're kind of like my parlor story sometimes, Brady, because you guys are like these rare unicorns in how you experience yeah. this. And, and let me just give this, this literacy to, um, some of the listeners. So I deal with a lot of yeah. people whose faith transitions, especially over this history. And in my experience, it seems that if people are, have to be told that Mormonism has lied to them or maybe it's false, you know, they read the CES letter or whatever, then they get really angry. But if they come to it, like they just figure out it doesn't work for them, they just sort of move on. But yours, yeah. yours is so unique. So why don't you talk about what happened with you guys? Okay. So somewhere... Somewhere around 1999 and 2000 or something. Well, let me back up. So my whole life, I've been a questioner, right? I've always just wanted to know whatever. I just want to know. And I've read and read and read and did the whole, read all the journal discourses, read, you know, everything I could get on my hands on with Mormon theology and then I started reading other stuff, you know, outside of Mormon dumb. And uh, I started just wondering, you know, like, okay, what is the nature of God outside of what Joseph Smith said, right? And, and, and just the typical Sunday school answers that you get. And, and I, I went through, well, let me back up even. So... So here I am. I'm a Mormon bishop. I'm a 70 apostle. I have five wives that, oh my gosh, they actually get along, right? And we're, we're touted as this wonderful example of, of the principle. And, and I'm working in the temple and, and I don't, I honestly don't really have any big skeletons in my closet. And I'm, I'm going to God and I'm saying, Heavenly Father, you know, I checked off this list of what I need to do right in life. And I mean, a member of the council was even coming and telling me, by the way, um, we're considering you for your second anointings. Just, you know, stay on the path and it'll happen really soon. And so I'm just sitting there thinking, well, first of all, my ego is pretty inflated, right? I I'm thinking I'm just, just a hair's breadth away from Godhood on earth. 
and because that's what you're taught, right? And if you get your seconds, you know, you're promised you're essentially a god in the flesh. And but but when I, you know, those those still moments at night when you when you're being brutally honest with yourself, I knew something I knew there was something missing. And and I really how far do you want me to go into this, Lindsay? Because this could be a long story. I don't know this, if you've even heard this. No, this story. is great. As much as you want to share, this is great. So it's up to you. Okay. I'll try to give you an abbreviated version, but so I'm 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 sitting there wondering and I have this gnawing feeling that there's got to be something more like, could this really be it? All I got to do is check off this list. And, and I've essentially checked off the list. So here I am like 30 years old and, and there's nothing left for me to do really, you know, uh, maybe I'm a little older than 30, but I, so I start pestering God and, uh, I'm saying what more? What more? And I, f- I have a really uneasy feeling and it persists for, uh, I, it's got to be a couple years. And I just keep feeling so uncomfortable. And I remember going, going on a hike, uh, to get clarity and just to bug God. And I'm up on a mountain and, and I'm praying and I just says, there's got to be more. Well, what is this? What's going on? And, you know, do I, you know, I, I went to Brother Owen, I went to Brother Lemoyne, I went to Brother Ron, I went to all these apostles that should know. And, you know, they're just, oh, you're just doing good. Just keep serving. And God, God spoke to me. Uh, not, you know, not like a booming voice from the clouds, but uh, he let me know. And it was a, it was a spiritual experience and said, essentially, um, there is more. Um, and I was so, well, what is it? And he says, I need to know that you'll do anything I ask. And I said, yeah, anything, you know? And, uh, he says, okay. And I, all right. <laughs> you know, I didn't know, you know, there was nothing, there was no answer. I was just left with that. And he said, okay. And then, um, just, Maybe two weeks later, I went to a wilderness survival class uh, back in the uh, by the Tom what is it Tom's River in New Jersey in the in the Pine Barrens back there. And I uh, as a, so I'm in this wilderness survival class. I'm well. I'm heading uh, to this wilderness survival class, and I see. Um, this Babylonian, right, in the airport. I'm in. I'm on a layover. I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, or no, it's Minneapolis. And as I'm going to catch my connecting flight, there's this there's this guy, and he's sitting in the smoking section, that's away from everybody else. And and uh, I just our eyes catch each other, and he's got tattoos and stuff, and he just smiles big at me as I'm walking by, and I'm like, oh, that's weird. You know, I don't smile back. I just keep going, and and then I get on the airplane, and sure enough, here's this same guy as I'm on the airplane first, and he shuffles by, and I'm on an aisle seat, and he looks at me, and he, oh, he recognizes me again, and says, hey, hi, 
as he walks past me and I go, hi, you know, and I'm keeping to myself like a good uh, Mormon fundamentalist would. And sure enough, we get off uh, in the Newark airport and, uh, and he gets on the same shuttle bus as me to go out to this where we're going to go out to the wilderness survival class and, and, you know, two and two gets together and we realize we're going to the same class and he sits and he talks to me and, and he's just really friendly. Long story short, I watched this guy who's got tattoos all over his arms, crawling up out of his shirt onto his neck. He's, he's got a buzz head and pierced ears and he smokes cigarettes. And I watched this guy be really kind to me, but not just me. Um, like I'm drawn to him and, and I see him be so kind to everybody. You know, I watch him over the first couple days in the class and we're out in the middle of the woods. Right. And, and I see that there's this woman and she's probably in her late thirties, early forties. And she's, she's overweight. She's visibly, you know, balding she's thin and she's got stubble on her face and she's just a physically unattractive person and she keeps to herself and you know i'm i'm not mean to anybody but i'm not i'm certainly not reaching out to anybody because they're all beneath me right they're just they're just i'm a i'm not a real friendly guy anyway at that time and so i don't reach out to her i just Actually, I pity her, right? This is how I was feeling. I pitied her. And I, I watched Justin go up and not just say hi, but he sat down and and had a long discussion with this woman. And I notice it. And I feel I feel Heavenly Father working on me, right? Making me notice his his name is Justin. I notice what Justin is doing. And I thought, wow, you know, and I think, why didn't I? Why didn't I reach out to her and just try to be friendly like like he did? You know, this this low life who has tattoos and smokes cigarettes, you know, and then something really hit me because later that evening. So there's this Fabio guy, you know, he's he's six foot three and he's, you know, probably 31 years old. And every he's the popular guy there. He's just good looking and really charismatic. Everybody wants to talk to him. And I see Justin finally, you know, this guy's by himself. And I see Justin go over and sit down next to him and talk. And I know, whatever reason, I know inside of me that Justin's not talking to him because he's popular or or good looking or charismatic. I, I know that Justin doesn't see that and that he didn't see an unattractive middle-aged woman either. And I, I have that I'm overwhelmed that I have to go talk to Justin. And so that night after everything's done and there's just this campfire, I, I say, Hey, do you mind if I talk to you? And he's like, sure. What's up? I says, I, I just got to know your story. You know, like I just see you like going around to everybody and you're just so kind. You're kind to me. You're kind. To, and I tell him what I had observed and he's, I said, can I know your story? And he goes and he tells me about how as a kid growing up, and Justin's probably 21, but as a 
maybe a 15 year old kid. He he's growing up and he's starting to get into gangs and into drugs and um, he's stealing and stuff like that. And his older brother is serving like 20 years in prison for whatever manslaughter or something. And he says, my mom decided that she wasn't going to lose another boy. And so she sent me to this wilderness program uh, for wayward youth in Washington state. And while I was there, there, they stuck me out in the woods all by myself in this one area. And they gave me a bag of rice and beans and a gallon of water. And then they would come back every morning to check on me. And by the third day, you know, I was just cursing and swearing and I just hated life. And he says, I was just sitting there and he says, Brady, I was, I was taking a piss and, and just mad at the world. And I turn around and he says, I kid you not, Brady, there's a bear. And it's from me to you. And we were like three feet away. And he says it was standing on its hind legs and it was roaring at me. And I'm just standing there and I know I'm going to die. And he says, I just said out loud, God save me. And as soon as I said that, this is Justin speaking. As soon as I said, God save me, the bear dropped down on all fours and ran away from me. And (laughs) and so he says, Brady, I spent the, the rest of my time talking with God. And... He told me that all I needed to do to to pay him back for saving my life is to love every person I ever meet. And he says, and so I've done that ever since. And I go, that's it? That that's it. And he goes, yeah. He says, I just um, I just want to love everyone, and so I do. I just love everyone, and I want to, and everyone I meet, I want to show them that I love them, even if it's just a smile. And, and I go, so do you mind me asking, like, I mean, what, what religion are you part of? Cause at that time I was just like, everybody that talks to God and, you know, loves has to have a religion and, and certainly they're Christian. Right. And I go, and he's just like, he looks at me and he goes, what do you mean? What religion? And I go, well, are you like Christian? And Justin goes, so that's like Christ dude, right? He says, I, I don't know anything about him. And I go, wait, what? He says, yeah, I mean, I heard that some people like they worship Christ or something and a cross, but I don't know anything about that. All I know, Brady, is God saved me. He took me out of being wanting to be in gangs or anything. And he said, just love people. And he gave me the ability, Brady, to just love. And I do. I just love everyone. And he looked right at me right in the eye and he says, and I love you. And I tell you, Lindsay, it that struck me so deep that, you know, I was bawling and, you know, it was probably 11 or midnight and I wandered back to my little debris hut in the middle of the trees all by myself. And I, I just laid there and I talked to God and I, he, I just says, where am I? You know, I I knew, I knew with every fiber of who I am, that Justin was better than me and he didn't even he didn't even know who this Christ dude was and 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 I I just got real and I got raw and and I says where am I at God and you know he completely destroyed my ego and 
said, everything you've done, Brady, is for nothing because you haven't learned to love. I don't care about all these little check marks that you've got. I don't care that you have five wives. I don't care that you have, you know, the 70 apostleship. I don't, I don't care about any of that because you haven't learned to love. And you, you're lifetimes away from what Justin is. And I knew this. I, I, it was like a revelation. If there's ever been a revelation, it was that Brady didn't hold a candle to Justin in the eyes of God. And so what did all this priesthood do for me? What did, what did all this righteous living do for me? Nothing, because I looked down my nose at everybody that wasn't a member of the AUB. I remember having the gall to go on my honeymoon with Rhonda. And I sat in a, in a park in downtown San Francisco. And <laughs> Rhonda can tell you this. I had the gall to say, you know what, how many, how many millions of people are in, this, in the Bay Area? And not one of them has the priesthood I have. And I was, you know, I cringe. You know, I'm deeply embarrassed by the man that I was. And, and I'm, but I'm very hopeful of the man that I can become because, because Justin showed me a different way. And ever since then, you know, I've tried. I've tried really hard to, to be more friendly and to be a more loving and accessible person. Because before then, I was a very, very closed person who didn't associate with anybody outside of, you know, who was righteous and, yeah. you know, which is a typical Mormon fundamentalist way to be. I would, you know, I would say that's closed. also an LDS experience though, to some degree. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, that's true. You know, as my teenagers are having, you know, having to go through not being able to date anybody because they're not LDS, but I was going to make one more point. So when, um, when, my original query to God was, you know, yeah, I'll do anything if you'll just tell me what's missing. When I sat in that debris hut, you know, and I was laid low and, and I was, I says, well, where do I go from here? And it was probably four in the morning when I finally got up out of groveling in the dirt at how bad of a person I was. Because I really, my soul was laid bare and I saw just how unloving and undeserving I was of God's grace. And I, I says, well, what do I do now? And I was told that I needed to go search again the words of Christ, only this time with this time with a new light, not looking for doctrines, but looking for love, right? This new hope, this new covenant that is spoken of in the New Testament, and that's what it is. It's love, right? It's not law, and yeah. which is you know, heaven forbid you say that in a religious <laughs> venue that it's love and not law. But I, uh, I knew, Lindsay, that if I went back, knowing that all, all of what we've been living is a sham, that the most important thing is not ordinances, that ordinances are, are just there. They're just a – they're almost like a parlor trick to keep us on the straight and narrow, to keep us, you know, doing good. But if you're not loving while you're doing good, I mean, truly loving like the true love of Christ, then it's all for nothing. And I knew in me it was for nothing. Those ordinances were nothing. They were holding me back. And if I went back, and I knew that if I went back and I shared this with my family, um, if I called into question the authority, that they would leave me. I knew they would. And I came back and... 
I just, they knew something was different about me. Uh, with that experience, and then I had another couple follow-up experiences in Boulder, Colorado that I can go into maybe at another time. But I just, over the course of six months, I knew that the that the group was wrong and that there was more to it than all these ordinances. And But I also knew that I would lose my family and that that's what God was asking of me was, was to put aside this idea of authority and, and ordinances. And I remember, I, I remember the night I went to God and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I know, I know I promised you and I get it. I'm, you're going to send me to hell, but I can't, I can't do it. I can't have my wives and my children taken from me because if I did, I knew they would leave me and stay in the group. And, uh, so for years, Lindsay, I, I hid what I believed and I stayed dutiful and true. Did you have and any resources around you? Anyone you could talk to about your dad? No one. Did you go on the internet? Anything like that? I read books. I had Ken Wilber, uh, just, you know, a ton of books. I just read, 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 read everything I could read. I loved it. You know, I could, I put away all my you know, Mormon doctrine books and just started gobbling up these new progressive ideas of love and uh, putting on the mind of Christ by Jim Marion was really instrumental to me. Uh, I read all of Ken Wilber's works. They were so good to me. There were, I mean, there were so many really, really good books that I found. Essential Spirituality by um, Roger Walsh was another great one. So, you know, I did all of, I started learning all these different things. I started diving into um, some feminist ideas, which, you know, go figure, uh, Mormon polygamist. Uh, adhering to feminist ideals, which took on a much bigger, as you know, a uh, few years later when I went to university, I, that was one of my big things, but, but the, to make it a little briefer, long story short after, man, it must've been three years of hiding little bit by little bit by little bit. My wife's started asking questions and they saw these new books I was reading and they'd ask a question here and ask a question there. And, um, and I would answer and a little bit by a little bit, they started coming to these same questions about, well, whoa, what, you know, questions about, because I would say, now, I don't know so much about, you know, that an African-American is inherently inferior to, you know, a white person. And they, they'd look at me and they go, why? And then, then I'd tell them why. And they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense, you know. Or should we really be so homophobic? And they're like, well, that's just, it's just evil. It says right here. And I was like, mm, let's reread that. Does it really say what you think it says? What we've been taught it says? 
or the roles of women in the home. And I, I wanted to be a, have a lot more democratic approach within our own family government. And they're just like, wait, what? You know, and, but yeah, that, that sounds right. And then little bit by little bit, they, they all came around and, and we all found ourselves across the span of maybe three to five years, um, on the outside of the AUB looking in. So let's talk about that because when I first met you as like this feminist polygamist, I got to be honest, I was like, okay. Yeah, we'll right. See. <laughs> and then you gave your first presentation and, and I only got an abbreviated presentation on progressive yeah. poly- polygamy. But I remember thinking, oh, this guy like is super smart. He sort of breaks all the barriers. I mean, you come in with like cowboy boots on and like a belt buckle and... <laughs> And um, I admit that's totally my bias. I, ju- yeah. I just didn't, you didn't scream like Buddhist feminist. I'm sorry. So um, <laughs> you come in and you give this presentation and it was abbreviated. So I kind of thought, well, here's a man grappling with a faith crisis trying to keep his family together. But mm-hmm. as I sat with it, you know, because you didn't have time in the first presentation to address some of my concerns. Yeah. So then you come to Sunstone and you give this longer presentation. And I sat there like... With my mind blown going, every critique, every question that I had, you would answer. You would just like address it and address it and address it. It was, I felt like I, like my mind was playing um, tennis with you. Like you would say something and my mind would go, but what about this? Did you think about this? And then boom, like you'd serve it right back. So I want you to talk about those ideas. Um, I don't want to give it all away because you are presenting on these things, but talk about this evolution, this feminist polygamy idea yeah so so i go to uvu and i major in philosophy and i've been thinking along the lines of you know just it's just wrong that how women are are treated in fundamentalist fundamentalism and and I certainly want my wives to have way more say in the family than, than what they've had traditionally or in the culture or even within our own family government. And then, and then I meet Shannon Musset, Dr. Shannon Musset at UVU, who um, you, you think, oh, UVU. But she's, she really is a world-class feminist philosopher, existential and feminist philosopher, particularly Simone de Beauvoir is her specialty and in feminist uh, academics. And she becomes a fast friend. And I, I'm struggling, like you say, right, with this faith crisis of, whoa, you know, women have been subjugated by men since the dawn of civilization it's, it is the very nature of not just polygamy, but marriage that women are subjugated by men. In fact, the whole idea of marriage and monogamy was to secure the interests of the man so that he knew who his real birthright was. And so he had to, he had to, you know, cinch up the fact that this woman wasn't having sex with any other man. And how do, how do you do that? Well, you make him into a marriage contract and you say, she's your property, right? And you control her womb as a man. So that way you know that your son is your son that you can pass on your land to, right? And so this is a real brief history I'm giving you of the advent of it all. Yeah. 
And I, here I am a polygamous man. And let, let's just call a spade a spade, Lindsay. Polygamy you know, has been, you, you can't separate polygamy from the subjugation of women. They have gone hand in hand since the dawn of polygamy. But as true as that is, sub, the subjugation of women has gone hand in hand with monogamy too, period. It just, that, it's true. Now, in modern times, so since the 1920s, say, when the women's rights movement really got in full swing, uh, monogamous women have taken a step forward in in their rights. Polygamous women, I don't think you could call it a step. You might call it a, you know, a, a little tiptoe forward in their rights. And that, to me, I found to be appalling as I started learning and I knew it, right? I, I could see it. But I could also see that, but I knew that I didn't want to, I didn't want to lose this family of mine. I mean, I love them. I love my children. I love my wives. And is there a way? And I searched, Lindsay. I looked, I looked. I couldn't find a way. And so I decided, I went, to, I, I went to Shannon and I go, Shannon, I want to curve my, I realize it's only just an undergraduate degree, but I really want to make the focus of my degree, especially th these feminist classes, to where I figure out a way to live a feminist polygamy. Do you think it can be done? And she just looks at me and she's like, whoa, this is fascinating. She and so we just start talking and through her tutelage and some other, um, Kelly Potter, I spoke a lot with her and she was so, she really helped me develop the logical end of it. And, um, Shannon and Shannon's wife, uh, husband, Mike, they, and Michael Minch, they were all instrumental in, in helping me figure out and giving me a lot of resources to read to where piece by piece by piece over a couple of years, I came up with what I've coined progressive polygamy, which is this idea of embracing a very egalitarian marriage, but with multiple spouses. And yeah, there's some, I, there's a lot of, of criticisms very strong criticisms, right? You can't just dismiss them. There's a lot of criticisms of polygamy that have to be answered if, if I'm right. If there really is a way to live egalitarian, progressive polygamy. And egalitarian, for anybody who's listening, you know, it's a, where everybody has an equal voice. Everybody has equal rights. Everybody has equal opportunities within the marriage. And it's not just them the head of the family, the man, and all these dutiful wives. Um, I don't care if it's monogamy, polygamy, whatever. The, the problem, and this is one of my little catchphrases, the problem isn't polygamy. It's patriarchy. It's the subjugation of women by men. And yeah, it's, 
it's predominant. It's, it's dominant. It's, it is the way in fundamentalist Mormon polygamy. And frankly, fundamentalism is patriarchal. I don't care if it's polygamy or not. And it just so happens that it's, it's a lot more what easy to see the subjugation of women in polygamy. Although if you're looking for it, it's pretty easy to see monogamy as well. I was sitting next to some women in your presentation when you said the problem is not polygamy. The problem is patriarchy. And I get it. Like I get it now. Um, but I remember hearing them, like I heard one, she kind of like folds her arms and she goes, Oh, please. It's just something a man would say. Um, but really, I mean, think about this. This is what I want listeners to understand. Brady grew up in the LDS church, a very patriarchal church, converts to an even more patriarchal church, has a leadership position in that church, lives the patriarchal order. And now you've become a feminist and you're converting your wives to feminism. And you're saying, oh, no, we've been living a very patriarchal lifestyle. Now, that's not so dissimilar to my experience where I thought I was empowered in the church. I thought I was great. I had all this pain and I didn't have an answer or language for it. But once I discovered feminism as a tool, people think feminism is like a lifestyle. It's not. It's a tool to like, you know, understand things. And so once I applied that to my experiences, I kind of thought, oh, my gosh. I was, it was the patriarchy that hurt me. It was the patriarchy that hurt the men in my life. And I think that that's, that's exactly what you're saying. And so talk to me about how, is it even possible for polygamy to not be patriarchal? Yeah. Um, it's possible. It's not probable. And it's extremely difficult as I'm finding out. So, There's some structural flaws, right? Uh, even if even if you're very if you're all completely well intended and well informed, so uh, the women in polygamy all become completely informed about all of their rights, all of their um, what they're missing out on. Um, that hey, you know what? I'm capable of being able to take care of myself. I don't need a man necessarily. I'm not going to just all of a sudden shrivel and die if. My husband's not there to give me guidance, right, or sustenance or um, babies or, you know, all of these all of these tools that the patriarchy or men, right, have used to control women. And so I've encouraged my wives and we sat and we've talked and we've talked and I've said, listen, you know, just even in our family meetings, I don't want to be. Yeah, I know. I get it. I'm, I'm a strong leader. I get it. I'm capable. But how about, how about everybody chimes in? Everybody contributes to the decision making and they don't just, you know, maybe give me a suggestion here or there. No, let's, let's vote on this. Let's, let's discuss this robustly. And if you guys, decide I'm up in the night, then I'm up in the night, you know, and I'm done. I'm out of here when it comes to making a decision. And frankly, and I, and I talk about this, um, and Beauvoir talks about this living in bad faith, right? And the idea of, well, 
the original marriage contract, you were sealed to me, therefore, right? You, you owe me your allegiance. You know, we just said bull crap. You know, that was, that was made under the pretense of this structural violence of being born and raised to be the dutiful wife. And I was going to be the dutiful husband. And, and when I was loyal, as long as I was loyal to the prophet, to our head, then they had to be loyal to me. And we did away with all that. And we decided that we would not live um, th- this lifestyle with any fear of hell or promise of heaven. That was removed from us because we learned better. And we decided, each one of us on our own and together, that we would live it for love and commitment. Did we love each other? Yeah, we all really, really did. We, we loved each other. But that wasn't enough either, right? I mean, you can love someone and just not, just not be able to continue a marriage. But we decided that we'd be committed. We also, each one of us, had to weigh out, is this really what I want? Do I, do I really want to keep having this responsibility of five wives and all the kids? And for me, yeah, I did. You know, and I really wanted to be responsible for them. Did I want to be responsible for them even if they were strong and independent women that at any moment could leave me and I just have to deal with it? Yeah, I did. You know, each one of them had their personal struggles of whether or not it'd be worth it to them, you know, to share and to, you know, the whole sex thing, the whole time, the whole um, just dealing with other such a large family and maybe not as many resources or, you know, these are all the negatives, but there's a lot of positives that informed their decision to stay as well and informed my decision to stay. So let me give you some of the questions that I had. So when I first heard the presentation, you had talked about it, you know, your feminist theory is on point. You understand patriarchal structures. You get this. And you were acknowledging that it was complicated. And the first one you said, you know, someone asked you about, well, do your wives have access to other men? Do you want to answer that question? So this was a real awkward, tough one. They never came to me and says, well, hey, you get to have sex with more than one woman. I want to have sex with more than one man. They never came to me and asked me that. They've all told me they've never even wanted to. I says, well, okay. But for this to really be equal, you at least need to know that you have the right. You have the right to petition this family and say, hey, I, I really like. Joe Blow over here, or, or you know, and I'm interested, and I wanna, I wanna talk about having having him enter the marriage, right? Because we're we're not polyamorous in that we we do have a closed marriage, and all of us agreed that we wanted it to continue to be closed, meaning no member of the of the family uh, of the six of us has sex outside of the six of us without the permission of the other five. Uh, It's a closed marriage, right? And it's not an open, we don't have an open relationship. And, And this, 
there's a lot of gray areas in the poly world with that, right? There's a lot of ideas in polyamory, and I'm not making a judgment for or against any of those things. I'm just saying that in our marriage, we decided that we want a closed system. So there's no other sex going on other than within our marriage. And I says, but if any of you do, it's going to be really, really hard on me, but I'll consider it. I'll listen and, and I'll prayerfully consider, you know, what you want. And they all just rolled their eyes at me like, duh, Brady. And I says, well, this is important to me that you know this, that for us to even approach the idea of, of an egalitarian or an equal marriage, that's got to be on the table. It can't be off the table. And Mormon fundamentalist polygamists, it is polygyny, period, not polyandry ever. Polyandry meaning a woman having more than one man. Polygyny meaning a man having more than one woman, which it's exclusively in Mormon Mormon fundamentalism anyway. Does that answer that, Lindsay? Yeah, yeah, that does answer that. So, um, okay, so you've covered this, but when you had said, you know, I get jealous, and my flag went up, oh, yeah. you know, my let's talk about the jealousy, because my flag went up when you said that at first, because sure. I thought, well, then it becomes coercion. You know, you're like prejudicing, yeah. you're adding a penalty to it. But again, yeah. you just like, go ahead, just answer it. Yeah, so if I'm being brutally honest and I and I want to be brutally honest with myself and with others, I will I will admit, listen, if my wives did have sex with another man, I don't know that I could take it. I would be jealous when I think about it. I get really jealous and I think, man, you know, my wives do this. They deal with this. They are so much better than me and i get it there's coercion right like well so if i go do this you're gonna be so jealous that you're gonna leave and you're gonna break up this great thing we got going and now we're gonna be single parents and blah 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 and i go and i know and that and it's i feel bad about that and i don't but that's that is me and and i'm gonna work really hard on figuring that out about me because even if they never do um have another partner even if they never exercise that right that we've decided every member of the family should have, I should be in a space where I should be able to hold that space for them to where they know that really is a right and that there's not the threat of losing a marriage that they find valuable, right? Does that make sense? I realize that this is something that just like maybe is really even hard to understand. No, it does make sense. And I, and I don't think you should be insecure about it, like about it not translating, because this is what we try to do with the podcast is explore these ideas. And I think, I mean, if I were to impose my judgment on you and your family right now, I would say, first of all, you are like any other Mormon who has had sort of a shift in their belief system, in their history and the stories and narratives and worldview. So you're navigating that like any other family. And you're trying to make your family work, your family that you love, and still be a family while integrating your new beliefs. So mm-hmm. that's part of it. And I think that there's something to what you're saying. But, but what would you say to people that say, well, what you're talking about is just polyamory? Yeah, so polyamory, though, is a, it's an open system, right? It's, it's not a marriage contract. Or at least, well, okay, so there's, now we're going to just get into semantics because some people would say, well, there is a marriage contract. But it's 
we've just agreed that we can have sex outside the marriage covenant. And, and that's okay. So, right, they have a marriage contract, and part of that is that, hey, we can we can have sex outside of the marriage covenant. And that that's fine. If that works for you, that, that works for you. I, I and my wives have decided that that would be – that would add a whole level – of complexity in child rearing, in um, well, sexually transmitted diseases, in um, trust issues, and and complicated things like that. So we decided not to open the marriage, what the marriage bed, and we've kept it closed. Now there, you know, and I, I think I talked about this as well, and some of the answers is that none of the wives we're all heterosexual, right? So accessibility to sexual partners is limited to me having multiple and my wife's not. Now, if any of them were bisexual or homosexual, then, you know, within that marriage unit, there could certainly be more than just me having uh, multiple partners. And, and in my academic writings, I, I explore this uh, in depth, right? The, how could this work structurally? So you could have, you know, one husband and five wives like me, or you could have two husbands and three wives or one wife and three husbands or, or any combination would work. But I suggest if we're talking about a closed marriage system, that there's just no sex outside of the marriage. And that's what we live, which is pretty typical. Most marriages are that way. But the polyamorous community is um, you can have sex outside the marriage covenant. What you talked about this again, but I'm going to say it again because this is what comes up for everyone. What about sexual mm-hmm. inequality? You have more, you have multiple partners. They do not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I guess the easiest way to say it, or one of the ways to say it is they have the right to ask for more husbands, but they've chosen not to exercise that right. And, and you wouldn't say that you feel like they're, from your perspective, your position on jealousy or whatever is prohibiting that in any way? Hmm. Well, in our case, I don't think it's prohibiting because I, I, I think they're being truthful to me and that they really aren't interested in any other man. Now, if they were... I think my jealousy probably could. And and let's be honest, it it certainly affects me, their jealousies, right? It's not easy dealing with jealousies and the fact that, hey, you know, yeah, oh, you're going off to be with Robin tonight, huh? You know, you're 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 going on an anniversary with Rhonda and there's jealousies there. Is it tough? Is it hard to deal with? Yeah. I don't I, I would like to think, Lindsay, that if it really happened, if one of my wives came to me and said, I want another husband, and all the other wives agreed, yeah, let's bring another husband into the family. I would like to think that the family, that my love for each one of them means more to me than my jealousies, and that I would deal with them, that I would put them in check, and that I would learn to love that man and get along with them, just like my wives have learned to love each other and get along with them. That would be my hope. Yeah. I just don't want, I just don't want to come across as the, 
that's the dude who says, oh, yeah, you know, egalitarian polygamy. I could totally do it. I wouldn't be jealous. I think that's bullcrap. I think I would be jealous. I think I'd be jealous just like women are jealous in, in polygamy. And I, and I hope that I would do as good as my wives. That's what I would say. I, I hope that I would. And we'll see. So I really appreciate you being honest with that. And so that leads me to another interesting question. What would it look like for you to have a brother husband? Like how, tell me what, if you imagine that, what does that look like? Well, geez. Um, another. I told you I'd ask some fun questions, didn't I? Yeah, another breadwinner, right? Another, maybe, you know, hey, you know, screw the women. We're going fishing this weekend. You guys take care of the kids, you know? I mean, maybe, right? Could it be like that? Could I could I have a brother husband that's as close as Rhonda and Rosemary are? You know, I mean, they're like best friends. I get woken up at night and Rhonda's out in the living room because Rosemary came over to talk and drink wine. And, you know, and I'm I'm in bed alone and I'm like, "What?" And you go out there and there they are laughing and having a good time at one in the morning. That'd be really cool. You know, it'd be cool to have a friend that would be that close that's also my brother husband. And it doesn't mean that I'm just because I'm heterosexual, so I wouldn't be sexually attracted to him. But could I have a brotherhood with him and that we share a wife or wives? Um, I could see how that could be really cool, you know, maybe some kind of camaraderie and uh, certainly more help in supporting a family. And yeah, so there could be a lot of real benefits to that. Interesting. Okay. Um, so we've kind of gone over, but it's so interesting to talk to you always. What yeah. would you say to currently practicing polygamists who don't want to break up their families, but are maybe going through something similar? Mm. Yeah, and that's happening a lot because there's so much movement, I think, in the world today toward progressivism and... I would say you've just got to be, well, I think, I think that there has to be a move away from fundamentalism period, Lindsay, the world, the world's teetering and there's a lot, there's this growing divide between conservatism and progressivism. And I would just say, you know, looking Look in your own life and see, you know, does it make sense what, well, okay. <laughs> Mormon fundamentalists, but the audience is more than just Mormon fundamentalists, I think. But polygamists need to realize that women, women just can't be subjugated anymore. They just can't. This, this idea of the marginalization of, of any sector of our society, whether it's women, whether it's uh, eth along ethnic lines or along economic lines or um, gender, sexual preference, all of these things that, that divide us, that enable the privileged and, you know, dare I say why privilege, right? <laughs> male white privilege many many of my friends that are going to maybe even hear this oh yeah now he's playing the white privilege card 
Well, I'd actually love to bring you in sometime. We should, you and I should talk about fundamentalism and race and just have like a frank discussion, but we can do that later. Oh yeah. Well, and we could go down the line. Fundamentalism is one of my big things, Lindsay. I really, Walter Benjamin and, uh, there's so many good things to talk about with fundamentalism and I really want to move away from talking about polygamy so much because I think a broader audience is fundamentalism and the world has to let go of that and embrace a new world ideal and that's progress. Um, and polygamists have to do this and if they don't, they're going to keep losing their children in staggering amounts and they are and they're going to keep losing their families because people, they have another choice now. Everybody's got a smartphone. Everybody can Google and see that there's rights to be had and you can't hide your family from them anymore. You can't keep your wives under a, under a rock and they're going to see it's more and more apparent that they can see that there's an alternative to living that way. And if you can, sh if, if a polygamous man like me 20 years ago can wake up and find a way to keep his family together and be able to live and love equally and, and give up this imagined ideal of superiority and just – It'll be such a more fruitful way of life. We are happier now than we have ever been since we've abandoned this idea that you have to live the principle, polygamy, to get into heaven or to stay out of hell. We are so much happier now. We're closer to each other. We're, the, the wives are, have a deeper friendship. I certainly, everything's more authentic. It's just a better way to live. Well, that's fantastic. That's a good way to end. So thanks for coming on. You're celebrating your what anniversary? 25th? Yeah, 25th anniversary with Polly. It will be my 105th anniversary. How about that? So is that what? Like, I don't, I don't do polygamous math. So is that like <laughs> wives added like the years with each marriage? That's right. So I've been married to Polly for 25 years, but it's my 105th anniversary. Oh, wow. Okay. I get it. Times tables. Okay. And <laughs> here's the thing that it just occurred to me after all the work I've done in polygamy, it never really occurred to me how difficult it would be for me to remember everybody's birthday and everybody's anniversary. I'm terrible anyway. So. My I don't even try, Lindsay. Sincere sympathy to you and your family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm horrible. I can remember everybody's name, but that's it. I don't even try the birthday thing. Well, Brady, you're the best. I love your brother. I think you're doing good work. And you're coming to Boise. You're going to speak in Boise yes. at Sunstone on April 29th, 2017. Yep, I'll be there. It'll be great. Cool. Um, Brady's just the best. Um, can people find you on Facebook? Can they reach out to you? Yeah, you bet. Um, just drop me a line at Facebook if you have any questions, and I'll answer them. Hey, Brady. Well, thanks again for coming on. Very cool. Thanks.
sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.